If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7, we'll read verses 12 to 29 this morning, coming to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been working our way through uh, his teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 for several months now, and we come to the very end of it this morning uh, to land the plane. Um, So Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse 12, we'll read down through verse 29. Jesus says, so whatever you would wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, so most people, for most people, their favorite part of the sermon is the end, right? Um, they get to go eat lunch or dinner if you go to church on Saturday night somewhere else. But um, the conclusion, and like most good preachers in the conclusion, Jesus begins to land a plane and he does so by calling us to a decision. He calls us to a decision, a choice between two visions for the good life. We've been saying through the Sermon on the Mount series that what Jesus is presenting to us is his vision for the good life, life lived under the good and gracious rule of God as a citizen of his kingdom where we're living under his righteous and redemptive reign. So we have a choice between bending our knee and coming under his righteous and redemptive, gracious and good, sovereign and saving rule or to continue to live with self-rule and governing ourselves and determining our own paths and are making our own decisions and not yielding those things before him. So we have a choice, Jesus says, between these two ways of living, between coming, embracing his vision for life or continuing to embrace our own vision for the good life. And I just want you to consider something with me for a moment, that Jesus' vision for the good life, it is attested by at least two things. One, it's attested by his own assertion that he is God 
multiple occasions throughout the scriptures and the gospel accounts. Jesus says, if you, like he's, in one place he says, if, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I and the Father are one. He says in John's gospel, he says the, to all those Jews who are gathered there, he says, before Abraham was, I am, which was a claim of his own divinity. Jesus saying, the one who's standing before you here and now is the one who stood before everything before time began. I am God. And you have a couple of choices in that moment. You can either choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is or that he's a crazy dude, right? He's a lunatic or he's just someone who's trying to deceive everyone. As C.S. Lewis said, he's a liar, a lunatic, or he really is Lord, right? So his, his vision of the good life is attested, rubber stamped, by his, his, his assertion that he is God, but it's also rubber stamped by the fact of his resurrection. Right, when somebody gets up out of the grave and they're victorious over Satan's sin and death, you would do well to listen to him. <laughs> right, and to embrace what he's teaching about what ultimate reality looks like and what the vision for the good life really is. And when Jesus comes to the end of his sermon, listen, and he, he's been presenting his vision for the good life, he calls us to a decision because he says, my words, my teachings are not merely meant to be praised. They're meant to be practiced. They're not merely meant to be commended before other men, but they're meant to be carried out. Jesus isn't looking for people at the end of the message to stand up and go, you know what, Jesus, that was really good. Let me give you a round of applause. But Jesus is saying, I'm looking for people who would act on what I've taught them. And so you have a choice this morning. We have a choice this morning between do we continue to embrace our vision for the good life or do we embrace Jesus' vision for the good life? And Jesus doesn't just teach us things that we can know it. Listen, Jesus isn't interested in how many bubbles on a Scantron standardized form you can fill out correctly. (laughs) But he's teaching you so that you might embrace it and live it and do it and act on it and carry out and practice his teaching and find that in that there will be flourishing and fullness and freedom. And so Jesus says you have a choice between two options and he only gives two options. There is no neutral third way that he gives. Right? And I wrestled for about a week and a half of how to tie all these verses together. And, and as, I, as I thought and prayed and meditated on these things, God kept bringing me back to verses 13 and 14. So that's where we're gonna anchor everything this morning and see what Jesus says about the option that we have, the choice that we need to make. Because in verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, there's two gates and there's two ways. And there's only two. Right? Jesus presents us with an inescapable choice. He says there is no neutral third way. You're moving in one direction or you're moving in the other direction. You're walking down one path or you're walking down the other path. You're entering by one gate or you're entering by another gate. There is no third gate or third way, Jesus says. There are only two and there's an inescapable choice between them. And Jesus says the first one is the wide gate or the, and, the, and the easy way. And Jesus presents this picture to us about the wide gate and the easy way. The wide gate is about as wide as, as, as possible. You can drive multiple semis through the wide gate sideways. I don't know how you get them through sideways, but you can drive them through sideways because it is wide, right? And he says the way is easy and there's an easiness to that way and here's why. It's because the wide gate through which the mass of humanity is funneling, right? They're all holding hands on stage together singing we are the world, right? You got Michael and Stevie and Cindy all up there on stage. Some of you don't know who those people were but that's okay, right? They're singing we are the world, we are the children, right? All walking through this wide gate together and the reason the gate is wide and the reason the way is easy is because it requires no repentance and no self-denial. 
In other words, you never have to turn from sin and you never have to say no to yourself, to any desire that you have. You can give full vent to every desire as you walk through the wide gate and as you walk down the easy way. But Jesus says there's a narrow gate and there's a hard way. And the gate is so narrow, Jesus says, that you can't fit through shoulder to shoulder with other people, but you come through one at a time. One person at a time. And Jesus says the way is hard because it demands repentance and it demands self-denial. In other words, you must, if you're gonna come through the narrow gate and walk the hard way, you must turn from sin and you must learn to say no to yourself. Jesus says those are the only two options you have. There is no third way. And Jesus commands us. In fact, the, the language of the text is he, when he says in verse 13, enter. It's, a, it's an imperative, it's a command. Enter by the narrow gate. Take the hard way. And so for, the, for our time together this morning, I want us to look at what that, what that means for us. What does it mean to enter by the narrow gate and take the hard way, right? And, and before we get to what he does mean by that, I wanna tell you what he doesn't mean by that. Because there, there's lots of us in the room who may have preconceived notions about what this text is saying to us. First of all, I want you to understand that what Jesus says when he says to take the narrow way, Jesus is not saying that the narrow gate is straight-laced, uptight, stick-in-the-mud morality. That is not the narrow gate that Jesus is presenting to us. Listen, Jesus is not saying that if, if you, you want to get into the kingdom, become a citizen of his kingdom, come under his sovereign and saving rule, that you just learn to abide by a new list of rules and regulations. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you embrace moralism where you feel really good about yourself because you've done some really kind things for other people. And he's not saying that you embrace legalism where you believe that if you would, you can jump through all of the hoops, cross all of the T's and dot all of the I's to somehow make yourself acceptable in the presence and sight of God. He's not saying you embrace either of those things. He's, right, Jesus is not saying that, that you somehow uh, begin to adopt a new moral code for life. He's not, he's not going back to the old model. Some of you heard it before, right? That I don't drink, I don't dance, and I don't chew, and I don't even go with girls who do, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not the narrow gate. But it's also, I want you to understand that the narrow gate is also not American civil religion. That is not, it's not God, family, and country. Because oftentimes in that equation, when those things are added up, <laughs> country and family become the things that God serves as opposed to family and country serving God, oftentimes in that equation. And so Jesus is not saying that you embrace a particular lifestyle where you drive a big jacked up pickup truck and you have a rifle rack and you have a Confederate flag waving like in the wind as you drive down the road, okay? Saw a few of those in East Texas this weekend. That's not what the narrow gate is, right? But it's also not high society galas and balls and black tie affairs and driving a Prius, right? It's not that either. That's not the narrow gate. Jesus is saying it's not adopting any particular, embracing any particular political policy or voting with any particular political party. That you, I'm, I'm Republican, so I must be a Christian. No, that is not what Jesus is saying is the narrow gate. See, Jesus says that the narrow gate, to come through the narrow gate, you must abandon at least four things and embrace one. Okay? So that's, where we're, that's what we want to take a look at this morning. We abandon four things and we embrace one. 
The first thing that Jesus says that you abandon, and these are in no particular order from the text, but the first thing that Jesus says you need to abandon if you're gonna walk through the narrow gate and walk down the hard way is that you must learn to abandon your self-preoccupation. You abandon your self-preoccupation. See, the easy way is void of any self-denial and it's filled with people who are too preoccupied with their own self-centered and self-directed desires to be concerned about the station of life and needs of others. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. Many of us are familiar with this text, the golden rule in verse 12. And Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus says the summation of all the Old Testament teaching about morality, particularly in relationship to your relationships to other people, can be summed up in this statement, that whatever you wish others would do to you, you do to them, Jesus says. But to do this, though, you have to abandon your self-preoccupation and begin to think with empathy and imagination. And here's why. Because if you're a, a, a male, me, in your late 30s, hanging on by a thread, right? If you're a male in your late 30s and you have you know, 2.3 kids and you have a, a home that has you know, two garage stalls and you've got some toys and tools in there and you've got you know, some, some electronics and stuff and equipment and things like that. So you've got all, all, all these things, right? You, you, you've got a good job, right? It pays you well, uh, provides for your family. You've got a caring spouse. Your kids rise in the morning and call you blessed and sing your praises. Right? You got all these things going for you. Then whenever you look at your life and you go, well, what would I want someone to do for me? Maybe a new tool, maybe a new toy, right? Maybe an iPad, right? Mine's a little outdated, runs a little bit slow, eats up a lot of data. Maybe someone that's a little bit faster, right? But listen, if you're an unwed teen mother who finds herself in an unexpected position of pregnancy and you believe but, and you've been abandoned by your boyfriend, you've been abandoned by his family, you've been ostracized by your family, and you believe that the only way to have a life is to end the life that is growing in your womb. You don't need an iPad. You don't need tools and toys. See, Jesus says if you're going to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that it requires the abandonment of self-preoccupation and self-directed thinking, that I'm constantly consumed with what I want or what I need, to put, think with enough empathy and imagination to put myself in the position of someone else who's in a different station of life than I'm in with different needs than I have and then moving towards them to do to them what you would have them do to you if you were in their station with their needs. Jesus says that if you're gonna come through the narrow gate, you've gotta abandon and begin to strip away and sometimes betray yourself to begin to think towards others because the narrow gate requires self-denial. It's the first thing Jesus says you've got to abandon and begin to think imaginatively about the needs of others. Second thing, listen to what he says, that not only do you abandon your self-preoccupation, but you also must abandon your merits before God. 
You must abandon your merits before God. See, the easy way is filled with very religious people who participate in all kinds of religious activity and they even have really good doctrine and make verbal professions of faith. Jesus says the easy way is filled with those individuals but they never finally and fully give up on running and ruling their own lives. Look at what he says in verses 21 to 23. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says, on the day of judgment, And by the way, Jesus speaks about judgment and the fact that he speaks about judgment is not unloving. If the fact that he speaks about judgment is loving, if Jesus, what would be unloving is if Jesus knew there was judgment coming and he said nothing about it. But the fact that he speaks to it over and over and over again is a testimony of his love for all all, every man, woman, and child that he's created. But Jesus says on judgment day there will be those who gather there and though they've made a profession of faith and they've participated in the right activities, they've avoided the big sins, right, whatever those are in their eyes or the eyes of their particular culture. They've even participated in ministry. They may have been people who have very, were very gifted and have high capacities, right? Maybe they got dunked in a, in a horse trough a little church that meets in a daycare at some point, right? They got baptized. They come to the Lord's table and they receive communion. They show up on Sunday in services. Maybe they even serve in the kids' ministry or they show up at VBS and volunteer their time or they go out into the community and they begin to knock on doors and God might use them as they talk about Jesus. There might be many mighty things that are done through them and miraculous things, but they've never finally given up on running and ruling their own lives. Because when they come before Jesus, they will say, Lord, look at everything that we did. Because there are are people who believe that all of their merits should be honored by other people and should put God as their debtor. And they've never given up on finally running and ruling their own lives. They've never abandoned their own merits before God. But Jesus says to come through the narrow way to come down the hard road. It means that you relinquish all of your merits and you come to God not with hands full, but you come to God with hands empty. And you come in humility, throwing yourself upon his mercy. I've said that over and over again in this series because that's how Jesus starts the sermon in Matthew chapter five by saying if you wanna come to God, you gotta come as a humble beggar. Not with your hands full of all the things you've done. God, look at everything that I've done, but come with your hands empty and say, humbly throw yourself upon God's mercy. See, Jesus has to come through the narrow gate. Even, listen, even if you don't know the words to this song, it is the melody of your heart. The old hymn, The Rock of Ages, in the verses where it says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. There's nothing that I can do to fulfill what God demands. If my, can, can, can my, could my zeal no respite? No, in other words, if I was so zealous, 24-7, and it never rested, and I, my heart never grew dull, and my heart never grew disinterested, but it was always filled with passion and zeal for God. Could my zeal no respite? No. Then he says, could my tears forever flow if I was just 24-7 weeping over my sin, always broken? He says, all for sin could not atone. 
Even if I was zealous 24-7 and weeping simultaneously 24-7, it could not atone for my sin. Thou must save and thou alone. Then he says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. I don't come to God dressed to the nines to impress him. But I come to God naked to be clothed, helpless to look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain I fly, wash me savior or I die. Jesus says, if you're gonna come through the narrow gate and come the hard way, you've got to let go and abandon everything that you thought made you acceptable before God and relinquish all of your merit and throw yourself on his mercy. That's what it is to come through the narrow gate. Third, Jesus says you must abandon all false notions of God. All false notions of God. See, the easy way is filled with all kinds of false teachers and teaching and their followers and their character and convictions are not consistent with someone who is contending once for all or contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says at the end of the New Testament. Right, look at what Jesus says in verses 15 to 18. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And he talks about judgment coming upon them and the fruits, the trees that bear good fruit remaining and the trees that bear bad fruit being plucked up and thrown into the fire. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus says. See, the easy way is traveled by those who would find people who will tell them at every juncture what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. What they want to hear, but not what they need to hear. And that's that's easy, right? Because it requires no repentance. It requires no self-denial. I don't have to turn from sin and I don't have to say no to myself. And there's at least two ways this happens, two popular notions of of God in our culture that you have to abandon if you're gonna come through the narrow gate. And the first one is this, is pluralism, right? Now some of you are like, I'm not sure, that sounds cool, but I'm not sure what it is. Pluralism, this is what pluralism is, okay? Back in the, in the in a couple hundred years ago, Western culture began to move in a particular direction in their, in their understanding of God and, and religion. And, it, and, and they began to think about what, the, what is the essence of a religion? And when they began to think about what is the essence of a religion, they said the essence of a religion is what it shares in common with all other religions what they have in common. So what they begin to do is boil down all religions and they, to, to value systems, not historical facts. And so you could have a value system that you piece worked together. And they begin to say, hey listen, God, we, we believe there's a God and he's on top of the mountain but there are multiple roads leading up the mountain. And so you can come up the east road or you can come up the west road or you can come up the north road or come up the south road or the north-northwest road or the south-southwest road. You have multiple, all kinds of roads that lead up to the peak of the mountain but God is there and all these paths end in the same place. Because they begin, they begin to think pluralistically. That's what pluralism is. And say, there's, yes, there's an ultimate reality out there and you choose your path, I'll choose my path and we'll both walk our paths but they're gonna end in the same place. And Jesus says, if you're gonna come through the narrow way, you've gotta abandon that way of thinking because he says in John 14, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life and a few people come to the Father apart from me. Is that what he says? He says no one comes to God 
outside of me. There is no other road, Jesus says. And you have to wrestle with that if you're gonna come through the narrow gate, that there is no approach to God. There is no, you'll never arrive at God apart from Jesus. So you've gotta abandon pluralistic ways of thinking, but you also have to abandon patchwork ways of thinking. And here's what I mean by that. It's very popular in our day and time to begin to piecemeal together your own vision of who God is by taking a little bit, by saying, I'm, I'm not going down the Buddhist road, and I'm not going down the Mormon road, I'm not going down the Christian road, I'm not going down you know, the, 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 the philosopher's road, but I'm gonna take a little bit from them and a little bit from here and a little bit from here and a little bit from here, I'm gonna bring them all together, I'm gonna make my own my own way, kind of patchwork, piecemeal vision of God, like a quilt hanging on the wall, put together by all these different scraps of material. I'm gonna have that vision for God. See, there, one illustration that people use who kind of operate that way is this, is that what, what we have in humanity and their relationship to God is God, they, they use this illustration of God being this big massive elephant and, and men being blindfolded. Right, and so they walk up to the elephant with, with not being able to see the elephant, so they begin to touch the elephant and one feels his tail and they go, well, the elephant, th- this thing is long and slender. The other one grabs his, 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 one of his feet, right? And they go, well, this thing is short and stumpy. Right? The other one touches the broad side of his belly and they go, well, this thing is flat, kind of like a big boulder. The other one grabs his trunk and snout and they go, well, it's a little bit slimy, right? The other one grabs his ear and says, it's really flat and thin, right? But, but none of them really grabs the full elephant because they're just touching pieces of him. And that's kind of how they view ultimate reality is that everybody has a little piece of ultimate reality but no one has the corner on the, of the market on truth, right? But the one thing that illustration fails to account for, so if you ever encounter it, here's how you should respond, right? The only way that you can know that they are not touching the whole elephant is if you can see the whole elephant. That's the only way. Because they will ultimately come to say, well you can't make exclusive truth claims. To say there is one way and only one way. Well the only way you can know there's not only one way, one way and only one way is if you, if you can see everything. But it also doesn't take into account the fact that the elephant, if he wanted, he could take his trunk and lift off the blindfolds of some of them so they can see him in all of his majestic beauty. The light of Christ would shine and reveal God to us. But most, most people, most street level people who just kind of think about practical realities of life where they tend to piecework their vision of God together is they begin to reject and deny the things that confront and contradict them and embrace the things that make them feel better about themselves. So they begin to piece it together, their vision of God. They have what I would call a Stepford God Right, in, 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 the, in the 70s, there was a book written by our 11 called Stepford Wives, and it told the story of these, these, these families in Stepford, Connecticut. And, they, and it was subsequently made into two movies. And, 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 and the premise of the, of the book was this, is that all these husbands in Stepford, Connecticut got together, and they decided, listen, our wives contradict us too much. Right, our wives confront us too much. Our wives have too much ambition. Our wives want to do too many things that we don't want to do, and they don't want to do the things that we want to do. And so what they did is they began to replace their lovely wives with robots. Robots that always looked right, robots that always dressed right, robots that always said yes sir, robots that always complied to their wishes, robots that never confronted them and never contradicted them. 
But what you have in that, uh, go read the book or watch the movie, but what you have in that, in that type of relationship, it's not a real relationship because you know what a real relationship is able to do? It's able to contradict you. See, those husbands had no real relationships with their wives and some have taken that approach to God. It's in the areas that he contradicts me, well, I'm just gonna edit that out. In the areas that he affirms me, I'm gonna bring that in. But that's not a real relationship with God. That is a God that you have pieced together in your own image, not one who has created you in his. So Jesus says you gotta abandon your false notions of God if you're going to come through the narrow gate. But fourth, the fourth thing you gotta abandon, Jesus says, is you gotta abandon all authority to God. All authority to God. You must be willing, Jesus says, to bring all of your life for all of your life under his rule and reign. That every aspect, arena, and agenda that you have, that you would submit it to him and come under his rule and reign. Right, listen to what he says in verses 24 to 27. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Every, the storms came and the house stood. But everyone who hears them and does not do them, he says, is like a foolish man who built on sand, constantly shifting and changing, depending upon the winds of the culture in which you live, your own emotional state, how you feel about things in a given moment or space or time. And Jesus says, those who do them operate with wisdom. Those who do not do them, he said, operate in folly. And if you're going to, at every juncture, bring your life in conformity to what Jesus teaches in every aspect, arena, or agenda for your life, you're gonna bring it into conformity with Jesus, you're gonna have to submit everything to his authority. You're gonna have to surrender everything to his will and not yours. You're gonna have to get on your knees like Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Father, if there's any other way to take, to, to accomplish this great task, let, let's go with plan B. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. There's gonna have to be a decreasing of yourself and an increasing of him, ever increasing of him in your life as you submit everything to his authority to do everything that he has taught you to do. And Jesus says, if you're gonna come through the narrow gate, you gotta abandon all authority to God. Because see, entering through the wide gate and taking the easy way, listen, here's what you're able to do. You're able to bring every carry-on possible with you. All your baggage, you can drag it right through that wide gate and you can drag it right down that smooth way, right in the bumps for your little luggage rollers and all that stuff. You just keep dragging it along with you. Take all your baggage through. But Jesus says, if you wanna come through the narrow gate, there's only, it's only one at a time. And you have to submit the authority to someone else to tell you what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is healthy and unhealthy, and you, that you can actually bring on this road with you. Last year when I flew to youth camp to meet our students up there and spend some time with them, I was running late for my flight. And so um, I had my carry-on bag and I had my backpack with my computer and some books and stuff like that. And well, I failed to realize that I left my pocket knife in my backpack. It was down one of the little pockets there. And so I show up to TSA station and the, the guy's there, he checks my ID and he, lets, he says, come on through. I bring my bags through, take off my shoes, all my clothes. I'm standing there in my underwear. Right, that's what it feels like most times. Right, so you're standing there, you're waiting to move your way through the line. You got all your bags up on the little conveyor and then you're and, you, and then you walk through one at a time, one at a time. 
and they has a little thing that goes right, scans you, uh, takes a look at all your internal organs, sends a report back to your doctor. Then you walk through there. They take the little wand and they wand you down. And then he pulled me over to the side. The guy who was standing at the at the counter as they were X-raying bags. He pulled me over to the side. He said, "Sir, can you open this bag for me?" I was like, oh, "What did I forget?" And so I open I open the bag, zip it open, and he says, "Is there anything in here that's going to harm me?" Not that I know of. Uh, not the bear trap at home. And so he, he begins to dig through the little pockets on my, on my backpack and he pulls out a little small pocket knife and he says, sir, you can't bring this with you on the plane. He says, you have two choices. Either you can fill out a self-addressed stamped envelope and we'll mail it back to you at your home. Well, it was a $20 pocket knife. I had, and I was late for my plane. And so he said, or you can leave it with us and we'll discard it for you. I said, well, just take it. I threw my stuff on, took off running to the plane, right? But here's the deal. If you're gonna fly on an airplane in our nation, you have to submit your life to the authority of someone else to make decisions about what is good and bad, what can be brought through and what can't be brought through. And Jesus says, if you're gonna come through the narrow gate, you have to submit your life to his authority as you come in. That doesn't mean that you're gonna know everything that you've got to lay down as you come in, but what it means is you've got to lay down the right to make the decision about what you should lay down as you come in through the narrow gate because you're abandoning all authority to make those decisions for yourself and you're placing them in the hands of someone else. And listen, he knows how life works. Those are the four things Jesus says you must abandon. Four things he says you must abandon. And listen, I want to close on, that's hard. (laughs) And Jesus intends it, that's why he says it's a hard way. So I want to close by telling you the one thing you need to embrace. The one thing that you need to embrace from this text Jesus, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna align with Jesus against yourself, that's what he's asking you to do, to align with him whenever you have desires that rise up within you, you submit those desires to him, let him check your baggage and say, yes, this can pass through, no, this cannot. If you're gonna y- yield to his authority at every point, abandon your authority, abandon your merits, abandon your self-preoccupation, abandon your false notions of God, here's what you must do, you must embrace Jesus' logic. This is beautiful. You may not see it yet. I want to help you see it, but it's beautiful. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. Jesus is entered by the narrow gate, and then he gives two grounds for the reason you should enter by the narrow gate. Two statements that he makes. Four, he says, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who find it. Four, again, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and few find it. What Jesus does is he gives you and I absolutely counterintuitive logic in our culture because what Jesus says is this. Listen, here's the beauty of it. Jesus says that what looks and feels like life to you here and now actually leads to death and what looks and feels like death here and now actually leads to life. Jesus says, if you come through the wide gate and come down the easy way, Jesus says, eventually what started out wide will begin to narrow and constrict and confine and destroy. 
But Jesus says, if you come in through the narrow, what you entered through one at a time will ultimately fully and finally open up and it will be spacious and you will flourish and you will find freedom. What starts off wide narrows down. What starts off narrow widens out. What looks like it will be life leads to death. What looks like it will be death, Jesus says, leads to life. That's beautiful logic. Why wouldn't you abandon all of your merits? Why wouldn't you abandon all of your authority? Why wouldn't you let go of all of your self-preoccupation and your false notions of God to know that what lies through that narrow gate is flourishing and fullness and freedom and joy? In C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the final uh, installment of his Chronicles of Narnia series, There's a great king uh, of Narnia at the time, Tyrion, who's fighting the last battle and he finds himself at one point in the juncture of the story backed up against this little small stable that's on the top of a hill. And he's fighting a battle and he seeks refuge in that stable. He walks through that door, very small door, and he seeks refuge and this is what he finds. Listen to how Lewis puts it. I'm a little bit jealous because I'm not this creative, but listen to what he says. He says, Tyrion had thought, or he would have thought if he had time to think at all, that they were inside a little thatched stable about 12 feet long and six feet wide, but in reality, they stood on grass. The deep blue sky was overhead and the air which blew gently on their faces was that of a day in early summer. And so as he looks around, this little stable that he finds himself in. He sees, a, he sees a small wooden door roughed out, the frame of the door just standing there. And he's just walking around this door in amazement because it looks the same on the, the actual door, looks the same front and back. And he says, he says to the other people who are assembled there in the stable, he says, what is this? And the other high kings and queens of Narnia's past are there with him. And they say, it's the door that you came through. And he goes, that's not the, he's thinking, that's not the door that I came through. And so they say, look, Look at the cracks between the panels. And so he bends down and he peers his eye through one of the panels and outside he sees nothing but a world of darkness. And then he looks back into the stable and this is what he sees. He looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction and his new friends all round him laughing. And then he begins to smile himself and he says this, it seems then that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. To which one of the other characters in the stable replies, it's inside, is bigger than it's outside. What looks like death leads to life and what looks like life leads to death. Think about everything that Jesus has instructed us in and think about how if you enter through the wide gate, how restricting and confining it becomes, your anger if you refuse to lay down your anger and continue to harbor resentment against others and do not go speedily and reconcile, you know what happens? What appears to be the e- what is the easy way to take, what is the, the less painful and difficult path to set your feet on, the wide way because everybody likes to bury stuff. Nobody wants to deal with anything. 
right? But you take that wide way, you know what ends up happening is what feels like life eventually constricts you, constrains you, and you begin to lose relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship because you won't resolve, reconcile, and work through your anger. See, what looks like, the, what looks like life when it comes to your word and oaths that you make and truth telling and honesty and integrity, what looks like life, what will benefit you in the moment is to only say things that paint you in a positive light and do not acknowledge things that paint you in a negative light. And so you begin to manipulate and bend truth. Sometimes you begin to outright lie and deceive and cover over. And you know what happens after that first lie? You gotta tell a second one to cover that one. What happens after the second one? You gotta tell a third one to cover that one. And what looked like life and what looked like it was going to be flourishing because people will respect you, continue to respect you, ultimately ends up constricting, constraining, and binding you toward your destruction. What looks like life in our culture is unhinged sexual expression. In other words, sexual encounters with no attachments. And that looks like freedom and flourishing, being true to myself and my desires. And what starts out feeling like life, ultimately, it pushes you to a point where you're wondering if you have any value in anybody's eyes because all you're doing is being used and not loved. What looks like life in the acquisition of all kinds of material possessions and storing up treasures on earth. It's, it's, it, that's where life is. And so you begin to yield to every desire and every consumer purchase. And you begin to rack up consumer debt and you got credit cards maxed out to your eyeballs. And then you begin to realize that what was, what was wide when you came in, there was so many opportunities, it was so fun, has now had a stranglehold on you. What looks like life, church, leads to death, Jesus says. And what feels like death leads to life. And it not only does that here and now, but let me tell you this, it does, does it then and there as well. And here's why. Because directions have destinations. If your life is one in which you do not abandon self-preoccupation, you do not abandon all authority to God, you do not abandon your false notions of who he is, and you do not abandon your merits before him, those directions and decisions that you continue to make on a daily basis operating out of your embracing your self-preoccupation, embracing the false notions of God, embracing your own authority, and embracing your merits before God, they will ultimately end in your eternal destruction because directions have destinations. But if you would abandon all that and embrace the logic that what's narrow on the way in widens in all of its beauty and fullness, that you would find freedom and flourishing once you're in, that in, the inside of the stable ah, is much bigger than the outside. Then not only will you find flourishing here and now, but then and there as well. And I can try and describe it to you all day long. But just like in, the, in, the, in C.S. Lewis' novel, as they come in and they begin to eat the fruit, and he says, listen, the, 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 the grapefruit, he says, was, was made all other grapefruits seem dry that you'd ever tasted. He said that the, the pears made every other pear that you ever had seem to be wooden and stimmy. 
The strawberries, the wild strawberries were so sweet that it made every other strawberry you'd ever had seem to be sour. I can try and describe it to you all day long, but he says the only way to know for yourself is to get to that country and taste it for yourself. And I want to invite you to do that this morning. See, at the end of Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, I'm going to set two options before you today. You can choose life or you can choose death. And Jesus does the same. Would you embrace his logic? and live in the freedom, fullness, and flourishing that it affords you in this life and in the one to come. That's my hope. That's my prayer. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, today, we acknowledge that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are kind, that you're loving and God, that you do not want to see us abandon our lives to destruction, but you want us to see uh, us abandon our, the ways that we live to have life. God, may we be a people, may we be a people who do not, may Redeemer be a people who don't merely praise your teachings, but we practice it. We don't merely commend them, but we actually carry them out. We don't just applaud, but we act on them, God. May we open our lives up to your authority, coming through the narrow gate, laying down all authority to make decisions and determinations for ourselves and allowing you to screen out the things that are painful and screen out the things that are harmful for us in our lives. May we abandon all false notions of who you are, abandon all of our full handedness in your presence and come with empty hands. And may we abandon our preoccupation with ourselves to embrace an upside down and inside out way of living that believes by faith that what we enter in a narrow fashion becomes the most broad, expansive, full, free, and flourishing space imaginable so that we would turn from walking down through the wide gate and down the easy road because we know that it will one day constrict, constrain, bind, restrict, and destroy us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.